2: These things are supposed to happen in movies, not
1: in real life. It it stung because it was like someone that teaches you, someone you grow up with, someone you learn things from, how can they turn and do something like this?
3: Welcome to the First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I'm sitting far away from Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. And you know what? Just... If you're listening, send Alexis some love. She's had a hard day.
4: I'm okay. Are you sure? It just hurts a lot inside. But I, this isn't a therapy session, this is a, a podcast. Um, but those who harsh. Harsh critics out there, soften your blows. We're only just doing our best. And also, um, give us more money. <laughs> <laughs> really working for pennies
3: over here. That's okay. It happens. It takes uh, 10 years to become an become an overnight success, as they say. So we're slowly on our way there. But uh,
4: inching our way forward. Yes.
3: Yeah, Billy, uh, what day is it today?
2: All right. Well, today is July 14th. And it's National Mac and Cheese Day.
3: Which I cannot believe that last week was National Macaroni Macaroni Day. Day. What? Uh, So if you celebrated last Wednesday by eating mac and cheese, you fucked up.
2: No. Well, you know what? No, No, not necessarily.
4: Or they did. It just depends on your position. Because macaroni, if you're Italian, is spaghetti. Like macaroni is what they call like... Spaghetti and marinara. So it just depends on your sitch.
3: But I guess that's true too. Like macaroni is mac and cheese, but mac and cheese is also macaroni. So I guess, you know what? Just eat macaroni every day.
2: It's a win-win. Pasta's
4: the move.
3: Pasta's the move. Any other days? It's also,
2: yes, it's Shark Awareness Day. And I'm going to read right from uh, uh, checkiday.com. You know, negative stereotypes and perceptions abound about sharks. And Shark Awareness Day aims to reverse that.
4: That's nice. Yeah. Na, na.
2: By the way, in reality, the chance of getting attacked by a shark are na, only about na. one in 11.5 million.
3: Yeah, I think that there's only like five shark deaths a year or something like that. Like the sharks are getting a bad rap. There's a lot of animals that kill you way more than sharks do. So. Exactly. Like a fire, like unit.
2: insects. Yeah.
4: That is reasonable. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a reasonable amount of shark deaths. <laughs> No. (laughs) Well, don't go in their habitat. We're we're swimming in their.
2: We're swimming in their pool. In their pond, like it's
4: amazing. There's only so few. I know it is pretty shocking. We need to be humans. Need to be humbled a little bit. I'm sorry. All right. Well. Um.
3: Yay, sharks! (laughs) And uh, oh, well, this is part three of Alexander Stevens. So uh, if you haven't listened to part one and two, that you're not going to know what the fuck we're talking about. So go back and listen, and then. Turn it on right now because. Binge all three then. Yeah, you know, you have all a, three. You have, a,
2: you have a beach read, a beach listen.
3: I know, that's so nice. Like three hours of us talking straight. So that's enough of that. Let's turn on the lights and turn up
4: that anxiety
2: because this could be you.
4: 24-year-old Alexander Stevens and 20-year-old Megan Schaefer were reported to be missing on the evening of January 3rd, 2017. Alex's friends and family told authorities of the odd behavior that Alex had been exhibiting, which led law enforcement to believe that the couple had gone on a suicide walk. Megan was found naked in a cabin that she had broken into to use the phone to call for help. Her back was broken. She had a broken shoulder. She was hypothermic. The following morning... Alex was found dead, naked, with his throat slashed at the bottom of a cliff known as High Rock, in Savage River State Forest. If you've been with us since part one of this story, then you know what happened next. A cloud of suspicion hovered over 20-year-old Megan as she struggled to explain Alex's neck wounds, which didn't appear to be self-inflicted. The rural region wasn't used to being at the center of such a high-profile case, and ritualistic items that were found at the scene only bolstered the curiosity and intrigue of the public. Soon it would be revealed that Alex had made Megan the beneficiary of his investment account, with funds totaling more than one hundred and eighty thousand dollars More confusion erupted, understandably. There were several indications that Alex may have in fact planned to kill himself that night. Despite the evidence of this, more than eight months after Alex's death and Megan's rescue— Megan was placed in cuffs, arrested and charged with second-degree murder, manslaughter, and assisting in a suicide. She pleaded not guilty, which meant there would be a trial, which meant that there could be answers to questions that the public was hungry for. Our first-degree Jonathan, who has been with us since the beginning, was still grappling with the fact that one of his friends was involved in such a gruesome and sad case.
1: The curiosity factor of, did she really do that? hit me too we were all kind of emotionally attached even if you weren't necessarily involved because <laughs> because we're so close in the town everyone would say of course they're emotionally attached and i was not to the point where it impacted my life where i, I couldn't do daily functions i couldn't do school and work and everything else that i was doing but it, it definitely loomed in your back in your mind
3: All right. so before we get into the trial, let's talk about the charges that Megan was facing. How can somebody be charged with second-degree murder and assisting in suicide? So Megan's own attorney said to the Cumberland Times News that, quote, assisted suicide participation charge is inconsistent with the charge of murder, which carries allegation of an intentional act. So this combination of charges is extremely unusual. So it defies
4: logic. Like, what do you guys think of that? So my opinion on it is that they have a particular sequence of events in mind. Yeah. And that based on the charges, I feel as though that they think that Megan was aware of the suicide pact and aware of the suicide implication of that night. And that when at some point she helps Alex finish, which for them is murder. But I just struggle with all of that. I struggle to understand, like if they really believe like her motive was malice murder, yeah and and she's twenty years old and she's going along with this what this guy wants. I don't know that murder is defined in the in the typical terms under these circumstances, yeah,
2: we gotta hear from her
4: well, my question too, before we move forward is how often.
3: D- Does somebody get charged with like two conflicting things, or even more than what? Like, I haven't heard of s- that many cases where somebody's charged with first degree murder and also manslaughter. Like, that doesn't seem to happen often.
4: Well, it happened with Derek Chauvin, where mm. it just depends on the state. And I really do think that the district attorney's office, based on that state's laws, just do whatever they can to foolproof their case. Um, and in this case, the the particularly uh, conflicting components are the the murder and the suicide assisting. Yeah, the manslaughter is pretty common because they're hoping that the jury will then just like default to manslaughter if they're right. about to convict. Right. Yeah. Like, hey, let's choose this. Like, it's sort of like a good medium. That being said, though, like with the with the suicide thing, again, it doesn't seem as though they're charging her as one like, blanketed offense, it seems as though, like, we think it started as a suicide, but it ended in a murder. And the murder to them is just the intent of, like, let's let him die now, whether it was his choice or not. Right. uh, That's what's so interesting about this case.
2: Yeah. So, you know, when you're doing with the manslaughter or second-degree murder, you're putting more more leeway and and more of the decision in the jury's hands, because the jury can actually say, no, he didn't really mean to do it, but this person died, that kind of thing. But like Lex said, you know, having that there, having the um, the suicide, it just seems so different. Um, it, it's it's a lot different than manslaughter versus second degree. Right. Anyway, let's get back to the timeline here. So Megan was officially indicted on September 12, 2017, one day after her 21st birthday. And this girl was entangled in this intense, confusing mess. She was only 21 when she learned these charges. She was granted a $100,000 bond. Her family posted it and she was released. While she was out on bail, she would be required to check in with a probation officer weekly. And Megan refused to give any media interviews or speak with news sources. And that's not a surprise, nor it should be viewed or regarded as a negative. You know, n- someone's silence should never be perceived as guilt. You know, we know our system is flawed. And like we were talking about in episode one, the biggest protection you have in the face of our flawed system is silence.
3: Right. And needless to say, on the heels of Megan's arrest, the town was completely divided in their positions on her possible guilt or innocence. And everyone had a strong opinion. And if you've been with us since the beginning, and I hope you have, or else you'll be very confused, you're already familiar with our first degree Jonathan. And he recalls how Megan's supporters made themselves known on social media.
1: They were all posting very nice things about Megan. She would never do this. I have full support in her. Praying for you guys. to get through this tough time. Everything will work itself out. There's no way that the sweet soul like this could ever, ever kill anybody. Yes,
2: many rallied behind Megan, but like we said, there was a divide.
1: But also, there was condolences on the other side as well for Alexander prayers for his family of course they lost they lost a loved one they're sorry that doesn't happen to him but there are also people on the other side too that were blaming the blame game blaming megan for what had happened i mean she could have done this if she's strong enough she could have overpowered him why did did she do this to such a, a nice individual
3: then some people were split between the two of them in terms of blame for alex's death and everything that unfolded that night
1: then also blaming Alexander. Why is he there? Why is he taking part in such weird things um, that night? Was he coerced? I mean, did he, did he coerce her to go there? Uh, and really, what had occurred? I know some of her friends that are emotionally attached. I think probably they would say that she's not guilty. And I couldn't blame them because the way we, knew, we all knew Megan was caring, loving young girl.
4: Needless to say, people were looking forward to the commencement of this trial. So many months had passed without updates or developments. The media was chomping at the bit, too. This was the most high-profile case they'd ever had in recent memory. The trial began in March of 2018 at the Garrett County Circuit Court. We asked Jonathan if he followed the trial as the proceedings unfolded.
1: I I did follow it. Uh, Everyone followed it. Uh, It was a very small town, and it took place in a town called Oakland. I'm just guessing here, and we have a population of about seven, eight hundred people. So all the news outlets were covering it. It was in the front page of the paper every single day. It was rampant speculation about uh, about the trial I mean, throughout its entirety.
4: The prosecution's opening statement pointed to Megan's changing story, how she told varying versions of events before settling on a claim that Alex pulled Megan over the cliff while Megan held a knife in her hands, then he grabbed it and cut his own throat. The prosecutor described Alex as a college student who was searching for ways to enrich his spirituality and echoed what Alex's parents had said, that Alex was not suicidal, nor had he ever demonstrated suicidal ideations. But the defense countered and focused on proving that Alex was definitely exhibiting behavior suggesting he absolutely was suicidal. The defense pointed to several aspects of the case to prove their point. The plan itself, Alex's, the knife used to kill him, Alex's, the cat and the carrier, the dog being left in the cemetery, the spiritual struggles, the items at the top of high rock cliff to be burned, all Alex's, Alex's, Alex's.
2: Alex's best friend, Stephen Moon, took the stand. And remember, Stephen was the one who went looking for Alex and Megan at Savage River State Forest on the night that they reported missing. And under cross-examination from the defense, he admitted that Alex had a bad temper, And he would fight with his parents. And he once smashed a guitar into a television when he was angry. Alex experimented with drugs. He had been depressed. And he had been struggling spiritually. Moon said that Alex went through phases, but he seemed to be improving. He also said that prior to his death, he had not been engaging in drugs or alcohol.
4: I think Steven Moon is a very interesting character. So I've been looking on Reddit. As far as, like, the theories that people have speculated about in terms of this case. And I think Steven Moon is the most interesting possible theory in that, literally, how did he know that night Mm -hmm. that they'd be there? And why... Would you, he drove 40 minutes away. Like you have to really be looking for your friend and know they're there to drive 40 minutes away. He's Mm -hmm. one of two places. I bet you Alex said something like, if you ever want to find me, I'm either at the cemetery or at the the high rock because uh, Stephen also checked the cemetery, but he wasn't there. So Stephen knows more than he's letting on. He just does. And then the whole idea that it's 40 degrees, it's raining, he finds their cars. He's like, I'm going to hike up one Mile in the dark with the just dark. a cell phone in the yeah. rain. Yeah. There's something weird about this to me. Yeah. Unless he was smoking weed. Because then I'd be like, I'm going to go on this adventure. <laughs> <Walk> about, <laughs> I'm going to find that. But I'm saying, like, if he was high and in a really good mood, I guess it's possible this was just like yeah if I meant to find him, I'll find him and like maybe he did that, but I'm skeptical. <laughs> well, the whole thing I mean, his call it's just like you knew you know too much, you know, and then also he knows
3: too much just throwing out the you know, the suicide thing like in the call, it's like, okay, well, if there was another person involved that they're trying to figure out, it's like now he's throwing out. That idea of like, oh, yeah, I think it was a suicide. So if you find like, you know, his his throat slashed or whatever, it was I mean, he probably did it himself. Like he's kind of like trying to get himself if he was involved, like trying to get himself off the hook by being like, oh, I bet I bet he just did that or Hmm. he was over there. It was just it's weird.
2: Yeah. I mean, the pinpointing of the, the locations and nailing them. I mean, if 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 one of you went missing, where would the other one think that you went?
4: I have no idea. I feel like if I went missing, Jack would call the police because I don't sh- I don't not show up for shit or text back. Yeah, I mean, So like truthfully, both of you, if I go if I don't respond for 24 hours and I miss one work obligation, I died. And you should call the cops. If I don't
3: respond <laughs> in like 1 hour, I died. Like that we just I mean, but it's no.
4: Sometimes I know Jack. I'm like, yeah, she's out." Like sometimes you don't respond and it's not But it's never like, hey, I need an answer to this. Mm -hmm. Um, But if I ever missed work or missed a work obligation, if I ever miss a podcast recording, I'm dead. Like, you should call the FBI. Like, there's something (laughs) bad happening. But not everybody's like that. No. But I think it's really interesting. I'm glad you brought this whole aspect of of Stephen up and him bringing up the fact that this could have been a suicide up. Because it's worth mentioning that later on, Alex's family said there's no way he's suicidal right? But they were all together when these calls were made, when, when, when Steven was initially saying this was a suicide and no one was contradicting that aspect until, and again, these are, these are, I have to credit Reddit because they brought this to my attention. All the Redditors on this, on this case, they said, you know, this whole idea of he could never be suicidal didn't come up until the family came up, found out about the money. Oh, Um, like then they started fighting this whole suicide aspect when they realized that Megan was a beneficiary of this money. And then it Mm -hmm. was like, it's murder. Like, there's no way. But everyone was sort of like complicit in this initial narration, in this initial narrative that suicide was probably the likely the likely thing to be blamed. And I agree. Like, everything points to that. Why would Alex transfer the money otherwise? He had to do this himself. Megan was not involved in that. So it's like, I feel like he was on this mission to like leave the earth at night and somehow everything's been twisted because what try explaining why the money was being transferred to Megan. I don't understand that.
2: Or again, it, it might have been, you know, she, she might, this, this guy's looking for any kind of spiritual guidance. She potentially could get in his head you know, say these things, we're going to be together forever or something like that. If anything happens to you, where is the money going to go? I don't know. Well, you know what? Why don't you just do it for me? That's a possibility that you can't, Shut well, the door up.
3: whatever was whatever his mindset was, he was like in a fragile state of mind, so whether yeah. if it was suicidal or if it wasn't, it's like he seemed to be easily swayed in like these different like pulled different ways, and whether that's like religion or a thought space or like whatever
4: it is. so sure who knows? Right. Well, either way, these are theories, rumors, speculation. I mean, you see how easy it is for everyone to fall into. We're not closely connected to this case, and we're doing it. And we talked about Stephen Moon and his suspicious interactions that night. There's no evidence to implicate Stephen Moon in this, or I feel as though the police would have uncovered it. Remember, there were nine months prior to even Megan's arrest. So I'm sure they looked into him. So Alex's psychological counselor testified that
3: she saw Alex in 2015 when he was taking engineering and economics classes at FSU. So he was diagnosed then with varying levels of depression, but claimed he was doing better. However, under cross-examination from Megan's attorney, she admitted that Alex had, quote, a serious alcohol problem. So Alex's counselor also admitted to knowing of problems Alex had with his family, including a time where his parents locked him out of their house because they were afraid of him. And Megan's defense attorney claimed that Alex had a fascination with suicide and called witnesses and offered lines of questioning to illustrate Alex's odd behavior and essentially prove that Alex was suicidal. Megan's attorney also read from mental health and police reports suggesting that Alex was interested in a suicide attempt from the late author Philip K. Dick, who was a science fiction writer who attempted suicide by taking an overdose of sedative potassium bromide, although he eventually aborted the attempt and sought help. So Megan's defense also claimed that Alex was reading about quantum suicide and immortality. And the idea of quantum suicide is that if you... Kill yourself in this life. There are infinite numbers of ways that, like that, you are all living. So your suicide in this life doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And you're going to live immortal within all these other um, planes of existence. Wow, which is interesting.
4: So, which, he- which sort of doesn't dispute the sequence of events <laughs> that we're dealing with, and that's one of the things that make this that makes this case so labyrinthine that it's like, yeah, that, that's feasible, right? Right.
3: So he also would take dextromethorin, which was in cough syrup, in order to hallucinate. So it's he's just doing a lot of things, and he's researching a lot of things. So this prominent argument that we keep on going back to is, was Alex suicidal or not?
2: Just look at the fact that Alex made Megan the beneficiary of that investment account, 188000 How else can Alex's decision to this be explained? And does that indicate that Megan was complicit or what? So the testimony from the state medical examiner was another key aspect of the case against Megan. So we have this potential motive of the money, which really looks bad. And then we have the facts of what the medical examiner said. And she had been the one to conduct Alex's autopsy, and her conclusion was that Alex's cause of death was sharp force injuries of the neck. Manner of death was homicide. And she specifically noted at least seven sawing motions on Alex's neck, which were forceful enough to cut through his carotid artery and jugular vein and actually nick the bone of his spinal column. So think about that. That's that, that's a very, very heavy thing. You know, we oftentimes... We hear about um, O.J. Simpson and uh, and Nicole, and yes, we're going to say that he did that. That was That's the same thing happened with her. So she was almost uh, completely uh, decapitated.
4: Well, here's the thing. You have to be strong. Yeah. So, and let's revisit what we learned about the strength of the people in this incident. Like, we know Megan was a skilled martial artist and that she was strong.
3: And a bodybuilder. We also—
4: not bodybuilder Crap. weightlifter sorry
3: weightlifter wait weight,
4: yeah. but yeah weightlifter but we also know that following her fall off the cliff that she had broken her back and shoulder but he punctured his lung and also
3: broke a bunch of bones so like her yeah.
4: which is again the thing that you go back you're like who the fuck did it and like, also like could have been it a- also presumably if we're to believe what we've learned so far is like megan had no real that's where this all gets muddled at the bottom of the cliff yeah at the bottom of the cliff, neither had the strength, neither really have the motive unless he's trying to kill himself. Unless she knows about this money, which we don't have evidence of. We don't know that he, we don't even know that Megan knew Alex had changed his investment account to have her as a beneficiary. So like at the bottom of the cliff is like where we're staring at to look for answers.
2: So the medical examiner says in her opinion, these injuries could not have been self-inflicted ruling out suicide. In addition to the arteries and cervical bodies that were cut, Alex suffered several broken ribs, one of which punctured his left lung, causing bleeding and air leakage. And she also noted that Alex's toxicology testing came back negative. Megan's defense hired their own expert pathologist, who disagreed with the state's findings saying that Alex's death was in fact a suicide because his injuries were consistent with one of Megan's version of events. And that version was that she held the knife as Stevens gripped her hand and forced her to cut his throat. Jurors were shown several photos of the body that were taken prior to the autopsy.
4: All right. So this is the first time for me that Megan looks suspect because I don't believe that well uh, and also even like the
3: pathologist that they hired it's like oh yeah yeah yeah. but the the injuries are consistent with one of her stories it's like that looks bad too it's like they can only mash it up with one of the five different versions of the night that she explained so
4: it's like it's not good and the idea that like he positioned my hand and he fell on the knife and then when I pulled it he jerked forward it's just I don't believe this I think a better uh, defense would have been like I got sucked in to this like he was dying and I he asked me to end his life. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like that would have boded better for her. Yeah. Uh because I don't I don't believe this logistically is possible. No, because no.
2: what 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 is happening here is that they are confronted with the facts of the case from the medical examiner that he his neck was sawed in, in, with, with seven motions, then she has to pick one of those stories. She can't pick the other ones. The only one that works right. the one is the that one that she them. has it in their hand.
4: That being said, though, she she gave her story that matched this prior to knowing what the autopsy results she would be. She also gave like five other stories. <laughs> right. But we also said the first couple were while she was incapacitated in a hospital. All The first four were while she was incapacitated in a hospital bed. So, like, whatever happened in these moments are what we're arguing. The shit before and the shit after. Like, yes, we believe that Alex, I think, was suicidal and he was planning something weird. He couldn't have done it without her. Because she obviously helped. because seven sawing motions to your neck that hit your spinal column. No,
3: there's no way. There's no way. And also, I do think it's interesting to note that about the toxicology report. So, like, he was not on drugs. He was not drinking. So like, I mean, I think that the whole explanation could be a little bit easier to swallow if it was like, he was like having a trip or something like that, but like he was completely stone sober, which I think is an interesting aspect too. Yeah.
4: Very, very. So from where we're sitting, looking at the proceedings that have occurred so far, the prosecution though we have to note, doesn't necessarily have a theory. They don't have a motive for Megan. They don't have a narrative they've painted for Megan. Their strategy seems to be as though that they just want to prove that Alex wasn't suicidal, which just tips the needle towards Megan being more murderous than assisting in a suicide. Like It just seems like that's their strategy. That he couldn't have cut his own throat. Megan had to have assisted.
1: I I think to this day that was hard to, to prove. I mean... I think that they were both wrapped up in things that jointly together, when nothing was coerced. I think they were honestly involved in satanic things. Now, could we could I possibly imagine that? Not really, but that's what seemed to happen, and it just seemed to be a very unfortunate night.
4: So, based on what Jonathan said, it seems that the consensus was that two willing participants went out there to partake in this cleansing ritual, and then somehow things got out of control. At a couple of points during Megan's multiple interviews, she told law enforcement that she had no idea she was going out in the woods that night for a suicide mission. This whole situation could be perceived as an assisted suicide mission, but is it possible that Megan got sucked into this unwillingly? So Jonathan actually recalls that one theory pertaining to assisted suicide suggests that a third individual may have actually been involved in this too. So, if true, this meant that Megan had to be covering for someone.
1: Yeah, that was that was one of the particular motives as well. Was it was a, it was a assisted suicide with another individual, and that she I guess it helped him do that. And maybe it was. We we don't have a clue. I think that that theory is feasible as well. I don't think that she would, from my knowing her and her personality, would voluntarily help someone kill themselves. However. Again, money was kind of involved. If she was a true lover and they really loved each other, maybe he could talk her into it or coerce her into doing such an act, I don't know.
3: This aspect of coercion that Jonathan brings up is an important one. And to even entertain this, we need a better understanding of Megan and Alex's relationship. Well, luckily, Megan would take the stand to provide much-awaited testimony and her claims would be mind-boggling to those glued to the case. that's it. that That's all it is. Two minutes. And the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon. Ooh, fancy. Shrimp and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is
4: active. It's almost summer, and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on TheRealReal.com. TheRealReal is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermès, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmermann, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000-plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply.
3: In March of 2018, the now 21-year-old Megan Schaefer was on trial for secondary murder, manslaughter, and assisting in the commission of a suicide. It was revealed that Megan would be taking the stand in her own defense, and the public was thrilled to finally get some much-awaited answers. At least, they hoped. Megan began by testifying to the background of her and Alex's relationship, which many people were in the complete dark about. And it turns out that Megan and Alex had only known each other for three months, prior to his death. They had met at Ruby Tuesdays while they were working together at the time. And she described their relationship as a fling and claimed that they only had sex three times.
2: And now here's where this bizarre story gets even more bizarre. Megan talked about the 24 hours prior to her and Alex's drive to High Rock on the evening of January 3rd. It turns out the whole ordeal actually began on the 2nd when she was at Alex's apartment. Megan testified that she ended up taking a shower at Alex's apartment. And she claimed that she was about halfway through her shower when Alex got in behind her. And Megan claimed that, quote, he told me to put my hands on the wall. He started cutting me with a razor blade, leaving cuts on her back. Then Megan said that Alex grabbed a liter of rubbing alcohol and poured it on the back over her wounds. According to Megan, all Alex said As he did this was, quote, Megan needed to experience pain.
4: So Megan's testimony continued, and she said that Alex told her to turn around and face him. She listened, according to her. And then she claimed that Alex bent down and with a razor blade, this is a direct quote, he cut part of my clitoris. She claimed that she froze in response, that she was mortified. Then they got out of the shower and got dressed. Okay, so... I think this is a very interesting turn of events. And I don't know what this demonstrates as far as his influence over Megan or the dynamic between them, whether it is he's a little older, like, I, I really don't know. Like, I'm super interested to hear what you guys think, because I just think it throws sort of a wrench in like whatever we were thinking,
3: or maybe not. I also think it's good to note that apparently when he was cutting into her back, it was in the shape of a cross, which also kind of leads towards this ritualistic sort of situation that he was sure doing that night. But I mean, you know, and she was saying that he didn't sexually abuse her or whatever her statement was during then where I think that she had said later on that she didn't understand that this could have been sexual abuse as well which I, you know, it's because there are so many different forms of it. And I think that she was just thinking like straight rape, where this is just such a fucking crazy experience for them to have before all of this other stuff happened. 100%.
2: Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's so new, you you know, as a cynic would potentially say that this is sort of the, um, you know, the kind of Jodi Arias defense of like, he was, he was abusive to her. And that's why this happened. Uh, the fact that it happened in the shower too, is that's just where my mind went, but you know, this very well could have happened there. He was going through a lot of stuff in his head. Who knows what the hell he was doing at this time? Because yes. obviously the one thing that, that we know for sure is that there was stuff going on with him
4: Oh,
3: yeah.
2: You know, there was definitely stuff going on with him. We know that. He was not acting particularly rational.
4: Totally. And, you know, Megan detailed what she said happened that time in the shower and also what happened afterwards. So what happened after the shower? So... Mm -hmm. Alex then picked up his cat and his
3: ferrets, and he went to Megan's house to get some of her stuff for this whole cleansing ritual that they're going to do. Then they went to Alex's parents' house so he could grab some more things, one of which was Alex's mom's dog, Sid. They grabbed candles, and at some point, Alex grabbed his knife. He put the animals in the car, and then strangely, he drove to that local cemetery where he left the dog. When Megan asked Alex why he was leaving the dog there... She alleged that he said, don't worry, I'm coming back for it. Then they drove both of their cars to High Rock. She said that she was very afraid of Alex, so she complied.
2: Megan then continued with the part of the story that we're familiar with by now. They parked across the road from the base of the trail that leads to High Rock. Alex had the cat, the knife, and the various items he intended to burn. Once they got to the top, Alex said they needed to be naked. Alex handed Megan the knife and urged Megan to walk to the edge of the cliff as they held hands. Megan said that she felt weightless as they fell. She said that they were hurt and freezing, but kept walking in the cold wind and rain once they got to the bottom. She said the two walked until they approached a stream, and Alex was facing the water. He said he didn't want to suffer anymore before slitting his own throat.
4: Right, and then Megan said that Alex handed her the knife, and he positioned it in her right hand. Then, Alex fell forward on the knife. Megan claimed that she pulled back in a reflex, which explained one of these sawing motions. Megan said the knife in total swiped Alex's neck three times and that ultimately the knife was dropped in the water. So after this happened, Alex's body was twitching, according to her, and she said due to the cold and due to her injuries that she laid on top of him in an effort to stay warm. So... Like we said earlier, the ME determined that she believed there were seven saw marks on Alex's neck. And Megan is making an effort to explain three of them with, with this testimony is, I mean, we've talked about this. I don't believe her. I don't believe she was out to kill anyone. I don't believe this testimony personally.
2: Yeah. And I think she's going with the three just because then there is a little bit of, of wiggle room there between the three and the seven.
4: I don't believe she's a a malicious villain. Um, I just, I just don't believe that this to be true. There could be a lot more to this, but it just doesn't really add up for me. Mm -hmm. So there's no doubt that many of the revelations in Megan's testimony were explosive. The divide between those that believe she was guilty and those who believe she was innocent was greater than ever. And like most of the variables in this case, the reaction was mixed. So many believe so strongly that Megan was innocent. And likewise, on the other side, some were completely convinced of her guilt.
1: My biggest thing is, I mean, I'm not a huge law geek, but one thing that I do know is you have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt for what you're proving. And for them to really (laughs) prove second degree murder at that point, for me, is hard to fathom. And to especially prove to a jury beyond that reasonable doubt that that had occurred, to me, is still hard to think about. I mean, we don't know what happened when the particular murder or or killing or Um, took place. We're never ever going to know if she attempted to kill him or killed him or assisted with suicide with him or if it was him that did it or what really happened that particular night and morning. There was no witnesses. The only living witness was her. (laughs) And so if she's saying that she didn't kill him, then there's no one to corroborate her story, but also no one there to defend him um, if something did happen and she did kill him.
3: So Jonathan makes some very solid points. So what was the jury going to do once it was time to deliberate? On Reddit, there was tons of speculation as to what the jurors could have been thinking and many expressing what the jurors should have been thinking inside the deliberation room. So many questions. Were Megan and Alex involved in an abusive relationship? And is it possible that Alex's death that was caused by his knife, his pets, his plan at his location really could it really be Megan's fault? And there was a lot of testimony describing Alex as severely troubled, suicidal, disordered, manipulative, and even abusive. And there was no such testimony like this about Megan, yet she is being blamed for his death. People pointed to Megan's testimony about being cut in the genitals, citing that there wasn't proof of these claims because her alleged cuts had not been photographed. But that being said, less than two days later, Megan would be in the hospital with a broken shoulder and back. So I don't know if these cuts were really her priority at the time. Lots to be considered.
2: The jury deliberated for roughly four hours, and then they reached a verdict. Megan was crying as the jury found her guilty on the charge of second-degree murder her bail was revoked, and she was remanded to the Garrett County Sheriff's
1: Department Jail. I think everyone in the town was waiting for the verdict to hear the verdict, and once we heard the verdict, of course, it got even more crazy.
4: Like so many other aspects of this case, everyone who followed the trial and the case as a whole was divided.
1: I mean, the jury, of course, found her guilty. I think that she could be innocent. And again, I, like I said, it's hard to break down the details and really explain and say, OK, this may or may not have occurred. But again, my biggest thing is when you're proving a case when there are no witnesses, the only witness you have also looks like that she has maybe some scratch marks on her, is naked, is hypothermic in the woods. I mean, a smart, intelligent person like Megan would not knowingly and willingly take her clothes off that I could think of.
3: Jonathan went as far as to say that he feels most people are unsatisfied with the outcome of Megan's trial.
1: I don't think anyone would actually be sold on the verdict, except probably Alexander's family would be the only one. I think everyone has at least some percentage or some hint of, of doubt or curiosity of what actually had occurred that day.
2: There were interviews with two jurors following the verdict, and they both said that the crime scene autopsy photos were what swayed them towards guilty, and that having seen these photos, they were convinced beyond any doubt that a person could not have done that to themselves, that there was no possible way a person could nearly decapitate themselves with a small kitchen knife that was only seven inches long. Megan's sentencing was scheduled for July of 2018. And during that proceeding, Judge Raymond Struben sentenced Megan to 30 years in prison. She will serve her sentence at the Maryland Correctional Institution for Women in Jessup.
1: I think it was an extremely long amount of time. I mean, I think that when anyone still found guilty of a particular crime, that they should be sentenced for, for a long period of time. However, because of the skepticism of this particular crime in her age and the circumstances that went into this, um, and there was a lot of unknown at that time. And and she most certainly could be innocent. She could be serving 30 years in prison for something that she didn't commit.
3: Megan's attorney filed an appeal seeking to suppress statements that she made to her rescuers and first responders, claiming that she had not been properly Mirandized. And she also moved to suppress the interviews conducted from her hospital bed after her rescue. But the appeal was denied.
4: And just when you thought this case couldn't get any stranger, it does. So you think, you know, Megan goes to jail. What else could there be to report on? But apparently in June of 2021, only weeks prior to this recording, a law librarian came forward with some explosive allegations against Judge Raymond Struben, the one Billy just mentioned, who sentenced Megan, the very judge who oversaw all of Megan's case, denying her appeal. In a lawsuit that was filed in May of this year, an alleged victim described being sexually assaulted by the judge, get this, in the chambers of the very courtroom where Megan Schaefer was tried.
3: So the judge had made a suggestive comment towards her. And when she refused, he became enraged and forcibly raped her. The relationship had started consensually as a romantic one, and each were married, and Judge Struben had actually gotten this woman a job so they could have more time together. Eventually, the woman became remorseful, and she wanted to stop the affair. But the judge threatened to fire her should she end this romantic relationship. And according to WVNews.com, Quote, if other employees were present, Strubin would use hand signals, including a Vulcan salute hand gesture, to indicate to her that he wanted a sexual encounter, which is
4: fucking so... Lame. Disturbing. and Also disturbing, but also nerdy. You're fucking a fucking... You're loser. a sadistic, fucked up loser nerd. Loser. Vulcan hand signal to initiate sexual assault. Burn in hell! <laughs> what a nightmare! It's so gross. It's so gross if you like if you think about
3: actually seeing that in person Disgusting. and like watching somebody do that, and him thinking it's... and him thinking he's being like sexy oh. yeah. and powerful. It's like go fuck yourself, you nerd.
2: So the lawsuit states that Judge Struben began proclaiming that he was quote more powerful than God, and that if she stopped having sex with him, he would ruin her life and the lives of everyone she knew. In 2016, the suit alleged that the law librarian was diagnosed with aggressive breast cancer, she was more dependent on her job than ever due to needing to lean on life-saving medical treatments provided by the insurance from her job. Struben allegedly continued to call on her for sexual favors during that time, reminding her that if she were to be fired, she would not have the money to continue chemotherapy and she would die. Wow. Right? Yeah. These events are newly unfolding. It's not clear how, if at all, this could impact cases that Judge Struben presided over in recent years. But, wow.
3: So he goes from being a fucking loser nerd to being actually one of the
4: cruelest. That's like one of the cruelest things that you can do to somebody. Mm -hmm. Yep. Like, unbelievable. It's truly disgusting. And you have to understand, like, this woman working—how much she had to lose— in coming forward with this lawsuit, like her marriage, her health insurance, like she detailed all of it, which is why she was involved in it for so long. Yeah. Uh, she's very believable, frankly, because her she doesn't gain to, to win anything by coming forward if she's lying, frankly. Yeah. So we have to acknowledge this entire case as proven by the bizarre turn of events with this judge has been atypical and strange since the beginning. For Jonathan, our first degree it has been a journey to say the least. One that started as he reported to the scene at Savage River State Forest, the morning of Megan's rescue. Photos of her still hang in the karate studio where Jonathan and Megan had met, where she became his mentor, where Jonathan ultimately took over her job as the instructor. And it's almost as though all of this never happened, but it did.
1: It was just a weird... (laughs) unique day for me to be involved in. Like I said, that's something that I'm proud to be involved in.
3: Jonathan's lingering questions are stuck on the strange events revealed of Alex and Megan's night in the woods before he died.
1: You know, one of the things that I, I'm still questioning about is what they were practicing. I you know I've heard cats. I've heard candles. I've heard, like I said, naked human beings. I mean, that doesn't sit right with me because that isn't the Megan that I knew. I would think that I have a pretty good judge of character. I was and as her friend, I was concerned. So it did impact me emotionally. It kind of affected me, and when the verdict came out, it it affected me because I was concerned. Again, I've always been Megan as as a loving, caring individual, a teacher, a mentor of mine. It it stung because it was like someone that teaches you, someone you grow up with, someone you learn things from, how can they turn and do something like this?
3: Huge, huge thank you to Jonathan for being our first degree guest for the past three episodes. If you are listening out there and you have a story to tell, no story is too small. Please email us hello at the first degree While you're at it, you can follow us on Instagram at the first degree, at Alexis Linkletter, at Billy Jensen, at Jack Vanick. Join our Facebook group by searching the first degree at the Facebook search bar. Please join in on all the conversations that are happening about this case because it just keeps. Going and going yeah. and going.
1: I want to. Oh, I want to. Oh, he- side note. Hear your theories,
3: side yeah. note.
4: There is a podcast called The Big Savage that yeah. I'm telling you. I didn't listen to it because my fear is that I'll always inadvertently. Like, my fear is that I'll listen and, like, copy everyone someone's work. No. So I never I never listen to things about it. But I hear it's amazing. And Jack listened.
3: Yeah, I listened to The Big Savage. It was amazing. There was a lot of... Um, they followed the court and a lot of court testimony and that kind of stuff. Um, so if you want to dive deeper into the case, they definitely get more detailed than we did on this episode. So definitely go give it a listen. And um, stick around tomorrow because we have a brand new episode of Killing Time. To bless you win. blessed.
2: And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close.
4: But, but not, not that, that close. close. Happy Mac and Cheese Day. Oh my God. Happy Mac and Cheese Day and Shark Day. Whoop. Shout out to Jared Monaco for scoring original music for the first degree, producing team Caitlin Cleveland, Taylor Rogers, and Alan Santiago for podcast one. Sources for this episode include reporting for the Cumberland Times News by Teresa McMinn and Mike Sawyers. Excellent job, you two. Seriously, amazing shit. They did an amazing job covering the story. CNHI News, WV News, court documents. And as always, our first-degree guest is always our largest source. I was shocked, you know? They were always such a good team. So successful. But to do something like that? To exceed